During Christmas, uh, there are a lot of familiar tunes uh, that we hear all over the place. We hear them in the radio, in the car. We hear them over the loudspeakers at the shopping centre probably far too soon uh, than what we would hope for. We hear them at the community carol events. Uh, We hear them in church when we celebrate the historic birth of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. That familiarity uh, goes even further when we read the pages of scripture that describe the events surrounding the nativity. Uh, In Luke's gospel account, uh, he records the songs of Mary and Zechariah, the songs of the angels and the song of Simeon. Next week, we'll look at the song of the angels. The Apostle John opens his gospel account declaring, in the beginning. Now these few words may not immediately spring to mind as a tune that we hear at Christmas, but these are words that resound with familiarity in general. However, as we'll see, they are extraordinarily important for what we celebrate at Christmas. To his original readers uh, and to anyone familiar in the least uh, with scripture, he draws attention to the moment of creation. And why does he do that? Because John is about to explain how God is bringing about a new spiritual creation for men and women through the mighty word of God, Jesus Christ. John's opening verses are an incredible assertion of Jesus' eternality and his sovereignty and his most gracious descent from on high to take on human flesh that he might be the saviour of this world. In John 1, 14, we read these incredibly familiar words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the promise of the incarnation We've looked at the necessity of the incarnation and now today we're going to look at the glory of the incarnation. That the invisible God has become visible in the Son's incarnation. And thank you to Francois for reading through John chapter 1 verses 1 to 18. That is our passage for today and as we look through this passage in depth now, I want us to see four things about the Word made flesh that demonstrate his glory and that demand a response. Who is Jesus? Well, the first thing to see is that he is the infinite word. Let's just read the opening first three verses. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. To begin with, in the beginning, takes us right back to the beginning of creation itself. And what we see is that the word is infinite. The word is eternal and everlasting, because before there was anything else, he already was. 
Now, before we look at the relationships that are clearly on display between the Word and, and the Creator and the Word and the creation, let's just take a moment to understand why John describes Jesus as the Word. It was certainly a wise move because the term was so rich and deeply layered and it was another familiar tune to both Jews and Gentiles, albeit in different ways. The term is a translation of the Greek word logos. In the Gentile world, the ancient Greek culture, were, they were familiar with the logos because it referred to the concept of reason and more specifically the organising principle behind the cosmos, the rational principle that governed everything. In our modern day, the catch cry of the world is reason, isn't it? This is elevated over and above all things. Uh, the importance of logic over faith. And faith is just equated as merely being superstitious. So the Gentiles knew of the Logos. They knew of the Word. But it was also a term familiar to the Jews. In Hebrew, it referred to God's self-expression in areas such as creation and revelation or salvation. In the Old Testament uh, spoke of the word of God being God's active power. In the Genesis account, it was by his word that creation came into being. Psalm 33 also emphasizes this when the writer declares, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. So in using the term, the word, the Apostle John is able to take something familiar to all people, but invest it with even greater meaning. To the Jews, John is about to show that God's word is not impersonal. It is not merely his force of power. And to the Gentiles... John is about to show that the reason behind all things is divine. Throughout church history, the Gospels uh, were given symbols that emphasise the main thrust of their writing. And these symbols uh, come from the four living creatures that surround God's throne in Revelation chapter 4. Now John's Gospel has historically been symbolised by the high-flying eagle because his writing about Jesus elevates us to the highest heavens. He could not be any clearer as to the utter greatness and uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the Word. Now, in these first few verses, he sets that grandeur on display for us when he shows that the Word is infinite in his relationships, firstly to the Creator and then secondly to the creation. So, the Word is infinite in relationship to the Creator. What was there in the beginning? The Word was. The Word was around before there was anything else. But the Word was not alone. He was with God. Just as God is infinite, eternal and uncreated, so is the Word. There was never a time when He wasn't. He just was. 
But while there is a clear distinction, two separate persons, God and the Word, there is absolute oneness in relationship, which is made even clearer by John when he repeats this point in verse 2. The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word and God are not identical, but they are together. But if God and the Word are two separate identities and are both eternal, isn't John contradicting the Old Testament, which makes plain that there is only one God? Well, that's why he goes on to say that the Word also was God. John is not telling us that there is merely something divine about the Word, but that he is the divine one. He is God. Now, some will try and diminish this, suggesting that it should be translated the word was a God, implying that he's a higher being than all of uh, other creation, yet he is still a creation of God the Father. But this not only contradicts well-established rules of Greek grammar, it also fails to take into consideration Jesus' implicit claims to Godhood when he uses the Old Testament title I am, in statements of himself, which the I am is God's self-revelation of who he is in the Old Testament. Jesus does this seven times throughout John's Gospel. Or what about when Jesus declared in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. And most especially we can see this through Thomas's confession that Jesus was his Lord and God in John chapter 20. That would have been utterly blasphemous if Thomas was devoting worship to Jesus, if Jesus were a lesser God than the Father. Now, while the term Trinity is not actually in the Bible, neither is the word incarnation, but the concept is very clear. These are words that help us understand the biblical teaching. God is one, yet at the same time, God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of these persons is fully God. God has revealed himself and his nature. But if we could somehow grasp all of who God is, then he would not be God. As someone once said, try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind, but try to deny it and you'll lose your salvation. How important then are these opening words from John's Gospel? They reveal to us the wonder of who Jesus is. And they help us know the true identity of the one that we call Saviour. He is the infinite, eternal Word with no beginning and no end. This means that there is absolutely no one in all creation that can be placed alongside of Him. No one that can be thought to be on his level. He has no peer. He alone is supreme. And this also poses a challenging question for whether we choose to listen to Jesus' words. For they are the very words of God. But secondly, the word is also infinite in relationship to the creation. Now, I don't mean that the creation itself is infinite. But once again, John emphasises the pre-existence of the Word. Because without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Word was the creative agent of the Father. 
For through him all things were made. When we look around at creation, John is reminding us that it is through Christ Jesus that the Father has created and continues to sustain. Think of the words of Psalm 19 verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And now reflect upon the fact that it was through Christ that he brought all this about. Even more so, John explains that it's only in the word that life is found. Here it speaks initially of physical life. It is through Jesus that life is even made possible. But the majority of passages that focus on the life that Jesus brings uh, that we find in John's Gospel, they are speaking about spiritual life that is rendered to his chosen people. Jesus is the bread of life in chapter 6. He is the resurrection and the life in chapter 11. And he is the way and the truth and the life in chapter 14. Now John sums up the purpose for his writing this gospel in chapter 20. Where he says that he's written this so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word is life and gives life. For he is the infinite word. But John also goes on in these opening verses to link life with light. And that leads us to point two as we look at the illuminating word. Verses four to eight, there are two aspects that I want us to see concerning the illuminating word. And the first is the source of light. Where does this light come from? It comes from the word. Verses 4 to 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, John hasn't just made some arbitrary or or random connection between life and light here. The connection is seen in Psalm 36, where the writer declares of God, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now it's not all that surprising for life to be connected to light. Unless you're a shift worker, uh, the majority of the world is inactive at night, trying to get a good night's sleep. But when the sun comes up, we are active and lively. In Genesis 1, God spoke the light into existence on the first day of creation. And the new creation that John speaks of finds its source of life and light in the Word. Later in chapter 8 is recorded Jesus' explicit declaration that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And as the light, Jesus shines God's truth and purity into this world. The thing about light is that even a small amount can pierce the darkest night. Uh, in South Australia, in a place called Narracourt, 
uh, Crystal and I went and visited this a couple of years ago. There's this series of amazing underground caves, uh, massive, and you can go and walk down them through with a guided tour. And at one point, the tour guide prepares you for this. Uh, they actually turn out the lights. And at that moment, you feel absolutely engulfed by the darkness. And even the smallest amount of torches would bring relief. Christ is no flickering candle. He is the light of this world. And no matter the hostility of the darkness of this world, he reigns victoriously and those who trust in him will be brought into this light. Paul tells the Colossian believers that he always gives thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How many other places do people seek life and light? Yet these are only to be found in Jesus. Jesus is the source of light. But then in verses 6 to 8, there is someone who sanctions the light, someone who approves of and confirms the light. The sanction of light is the witness. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This man sent from God was John the Baptist. Of course, a, a different John to the apostle who's writing this gospel account. John the Baptist was sent as a witness to the arrival of the word on the earth. The significance of the word is that a messenger was sent to prepare the way for the word's arrival, to ready people's hearts for his coming. At John's birth, his father Zechariah prophesied this task in song. This is one of the songs of Christmas in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah proclaims, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. These words tell us about John the Baptist, but more importantly, they tell us about the one that he readied the people for. John was there to point to the light, to point to the one whom life was found in. So John has described for us the illuminating word. But he goes on in verses 9 to 13 to show that the word's presence is not passive, but it impels a response. And so point three, the impelling word. The word's arrival impels a willing decision. This leads to either rejection or reception. We can see the rejection very clearly from verse 9 to 11. 
The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The infinite word has come into our world, the world that he created, but those who should have been waiting for him did not want anything to do with him. The Jews were not looking for someone to save them from their sin, but were looking for a messianic king who would reinstall the kingdom of Israel to its rightful glory. Why did they not think they needed a saviour? Because they had the law of God and were seeking to follow it as a means of salvation, not realising that they could not achieve the perfect righteousness and holiness that it demanded. They did not think of themselves the way the scriptures reveal the true state of fallen man. In Romans 3, Paul strings together a series of quotes from the Old Testament that make plain the real heart of man. And this is for both Jews and Gentiles. They're all alike under sin. Paul says, as it is written, now just let these words sink in. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible teaches so clearly that unregenerate sinners are totally depraved. That does not mean that we are utterly depraved, that our actions are as sinful as they could possibly be. Even Hitler probably loved his mum at some point along the way. But we are totally depraved in that we have no capacity in and of ourselves to respond to God by our own strength and ability. Elsewhere in Ephesians 2, Paul describes the unregenerate sinner as spiritually dead in sin. What can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. For someone to take even one step towards God requires God to bring them to life again. And from this new life, can they then respond to God with repentance of sin and faith in Christ? And you know what? That's exactly what we see in the following verses. In John 1 verses 12 to 13. It is by the power of God that people are able to receive the word. Rejection of the word happens because of sin. Whereas reception of the word happens because of grace. Verses 12 to 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who are impelled to receive and believe in the word are made children of God. That's the message of the gospel that the church is called to proclaim. In Luke 24, Jesus gives that commission to the apostles, which naturally then transfers to the church in general. Listen to these words of Jesus. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So our mission is clear, right? But that mission is doomed to fail unless God himself works through the preaching of the word by the power of the spirit to regenerate sinners' hearts that they might respond in repentance and faith. That is why John makes clear that salvation is solely the work of God. How are people made children of God? It is not a matter of being born into the people of Israel. It is not reliant upon human willing or effort or work. No, it requires being born of what? Of God. It is God who brings new birth to sinners. It is God who brings people into his family. And you know what? John makes that abundantly clear throughout the rest of his gospel account. Listen to these words of Jesus. John 3, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John six forty four, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus, the impelling word, has come to bring light and life. And the offer is made to all. But it is by the grace of God that people receive him. Well, as we come to the final few verses now, we'll see the glory of the incarnate word. Here we see in great clarity the enormous depth that God would go to in order to save his people. To reconcile sinners to himself. So point four is the incarnate word. There are several aspects to bring out from verse 14 to 18. And the first is the word's encampment. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the word dwelt among us means that he is encamped. Among us, he sets up a tent in our midst, and it takes us back to the picture of God dwelling among the people of Israel in the temple, and then prior to that in the tabernacle, the tent that Moses set up, in which the glory of God sat within the people. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell that I may encamp in their midst. But it takes us even further back to the Garden of Eden, when God was present among his first creations, Adam and Eve. To have a people who experience his gracious rule has been God's plan since the beginning. 
And if we flick from the first pages of the Bible to the last pages of Scripture, we see that this will truly come to fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. John records of this vision in Revelation 21, and he says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This final reality is only made possible by the miracle of the incarnation, that the word as truly God became at the same time truly man. One person, two distinct natures. Only through the word made flesh is there hope for sinful humanity to be reconciled to holy God. But not only does John speak of the word's encampment, he speaks of his excellence. Continuing in verse 14, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The we here refers to the Apostle John and his contemporaries. But it doesn't mean that later believers cannot experience the glory of the Son. The believers who followed, including us today, we're not short-changed. Think of Jesus' own words to the Apostle John, uh, the Apostle Thomas in John 20, when Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So how and when did John see Jesus' glory? On three occasions. He saw that in the miracles that Jesus performed. He saw that in the transfiguration where he stood on the mount with Peter and James. And we see that clearly in Jesus' death, resurrection and exaltation. Jesus in John 12 said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Pointing to the cross. But what then is glory? Well, firstly, it means honour and excellent reputation. God speaks of his children in Isaiah as those whom I have created for my glory. In a negative sense, in Romans 3, Paul speaks of uh, people all having sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. John the Baptist brings or brings this out in, in John 1.15. The Baptist who bore witness about him and cried out, This was, of, was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Glory speaks of excellence and honour. But God is a spirit and as such he is invisible. And so when we think of glory, we also understand that glory is a visible manifestation of the invisible God. It is the bright light that surrounds God's presence. It's what he creates to bear witness to his presence. And we can see that multiple times throughout the scriptures. In Exodus 24 we read that Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. The cloud that came down was a visible manifestation of God's glory. 
What Moses witnessed is what John saw in Jesus, the glory of God. And this is even more clear when it's written that Jesus is full of grace and truth. In Exodus 34, the Lord's glory descends on Moses once more and God proclaims of himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now this love and faithfulness in Exodus 34 is directly comparable to grace and truth in John 1. Love refers to God's gracious covenant and faithfulness refers to God's character and words which are always faithful and true. Jesus embodies those characteristics perfectly for he is God's one and only son. The phrase one and only has previously been translated as only begotten and we see that in the New King James. In English, however, to beget means to generate offspring, to procreate, to have children. And of course, this leads to great confusion because as John the Apostle has already stated, the Son, the Word, is not only with God, He is God and is eternal. There never was a time when He was not. When the phrase was used in the Nicene Creed in the 4th century, the writers wanted to affirm the eternality of the Son. And so in the Creed we read that Jesus is begotten, not made. Indeed, part of the purpose of writing that creed was to rebuke those who claimed Jesus was a creation of the Father. What the writers of the creed understood, what the Greek word translated as only begotten actually means is unique, one of a kind, one and only. You can see that when the same Greek word is used in Hebrews 11, which speaks of Isaac as being Abraham's one and only son. But of course, we know that Isaac had an older half-brother named Ishmael. So it didn't refer to Isaac's birth, but to his status as the unique son. So there is no problem in referring to Jesus as the only begotten, as long as we understand that it relates to his uniqueness, not his being created, for he is eternal. There never was a time when he was not. The only, one and only Son is who they experienced and he radiated the excellence, the glory of God. Now, if for some reason the connection to Moses and the fulfilment of God's work in Christ is still not clear, John makes that ever so in verses 16 to 17 when he directly contrasts Moses and Jesus. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The grace that God gave through Moses and the law is now fulfilled in the grace God has given through Jesus, who has come to personally reveal the glory of God. That is the excellence of the word made flesh. But there is a third aspect to the incarnation and that is his explanation. It's our last verse, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now the phrase made him known 
translates the word that we get in English as exegesis. Exegesis is what Christians should be doing every time we pick up the Bible. It is a task of understanding the meaning of the text. As opposed to eisegesis, which is to put our own meaning into the text, to come to the Bible and and look for affirmations of our own understandings. Exegesis is to come to the Bible, to lay aside our own worldviews, our own thoughts, things that we've been taught as children, put that aside and get the meaning out of the text. What the Apostle John is saying here is that Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains the Father. He makes the meaning of the Father known. Later in John's Gospel, when Philip asked Jesus to show the disciples the Father, what does Jesus say? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The reason why Jesus can make the Father known is because Jesus himself is one with the Father. Jesus himself is God and he is at the Father's side. It is God the Son who makes known to us God the Father. The Son is not the Father, for he is at the Father's side. He is distinct. And yet there is only one God. For as Jesus says later, I and the Father are one. We cannot find the Father any other way than by coming to the Son, Jesus Christ, the infinite, illuminating, compelling, incarnate Word. As Christmas Day fast approaches, let us grasp the enormity of what the Holy Spirit declares through the pen of the Apostle John. This little one, this babe in the manger, is none other than the Word made flesh. The weakness of humanity is entered into by the God of creation. It is this one who, in growing to be a man would be the one whose sinless life would display the immense glory of God. And the glory which found its climax in his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven where he reigns as Lord over all and from where he will return one day to raise his people to glory and to bring judgment upon the wicked and rebellious in this world. The glory of God, his excellence and his visible manifestation in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ calls for acknowledgement. And this is exactly what John speaks of in this opening chapter. So may God's grace enable you to see the glory of Christ and to receive him and to believe in him and to obey him. This Christmas, may we truly glorify the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we come to a passage like this, we recognise your incredible greatness. We recognise that in as we, we read these words and we can... We can see what they mean, but to get our heads around them, 
we recognise that we'll be plumbing the depths of your greatness for eternity. That you are God, that you are one and yet that you are Father, Son and Spirit. And that the Son has become flesh. Truly God and truly man. What a wonder this is. But Father, let us continue to be in awe of these truths you have revealed. Let these not be stumbling blocks, but let these help us to to recognise our place before you as, as mere creatures. And yet not mere creatures in the sense of being worthless, but while we were still enemies, while we were still sinners raging against you, you sent your Son into this world to reveal you and to die on the cross in the place of your people that they might too be raised to new life in glory with the Son. Father, we thank you for the immensity of this passage. We thank you for your grace and your mercy which so clearly comes through. We pray this in your Lord, the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.